This episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast is brought to you by Tony Robbins Results Coaching. Are you ready to experience an extraordinary quality of life? Or maybe you're already doing well, but you know you can take your life to a whole new level. To do that, you have to set yourself up to win. You need a process, a way to consistently grow and produce the results that you need. That's what a Tony Robbins Results Coach can do for you. Whatever area in your life you want to change, your relationship, your health, your career, your business, coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself and it can yield some of the highest returns. Tony Robbins Results Coaches are hand-selected and trained by the master of coaching, Tony Robbins himself, to have the skills that will empower you with supreme focus, powerful insight, and the accountability needed to achieve everything you've ever dreamed. To help you get started, Tony is offering podcast listeners a free results coaching strategy session with one of his top coaches. It's a $200 value, and you're getting it for free. Visit TonyRobbins.com results. Schedule that free session today. What do the greatest leaders of all time have in common? You may think it comes down to a certain sense of charisma or some inhuman level of talent, because that's what we've all been conditioned to think defines a leader. But superstars aren't the same thing as super leaders. In fact, the greatest leaders often fly under the radar and are actually easy to miss. Hey guys, it's Anna, editorial director for RRI. Welcome back to the Tony Robbins podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with renowned author and leadership expert, Sam Walker. A former reporter, sports columnist, and sports editor, Sam founded the Wall Street Journal's prize-winning daily sports coverage. And most recently, he helped launch the journal's leadership column. He's the author of Fantasyland, a best-selling account of his time in Tout Wars, America's top fantasy baseball expert competition, of which he is a two-time champion. And in his latest book, The Captain Class, Sam profiles the greatest teams in history and identifies the secret sauce that drove these unconventional men and women to achieve massive success. Now he's sharing some of these incredible insights with us. We do a deep dive into the behavioral and psychological traits of these individuals and how they've been the driving force behind some of the most legendary teams in history. We discuss the myths about leadership and how to really identify and cultivate the leaders you see in your own organization. Because it isn't always obvious. In fact, it rarely is. And as Sam reveals, once you do find these individuals, you need to understand how to effectively partner with them so that they assume a more autonomous role that can ultimately lead the entire team to success. All right, Sam Walker, welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks, Anna. It's great to be here. So I wanted to talk about how you originally decided to write this book called The Captain Class, The Hidden Forces, uh, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. Did you stumble across the topic or is this sort of like a long-term obsession of yours? It was a long, long, long obsession. And it really began with a question, a nagging question that I just never heard an answer to that I thought was sufficient. So the story is I, I worked for the Wall Street Journal, and for about 10 years, I was a sports columnist. And my beat really was big championships, big events. And I was lucky enough to go all over the world and cover all kinds of events. And what I did was spend a lot of time with great teams, teams at the top of their game. And I would listen to the interviews that they gave, and I would ask them these questions why is this team so good? What makes this team great? And I just never heard an answer that 
uh, I thought really explained it. And I, this was always a puzzle to me. And finally, I decided that I wanted to look into this and I wanted to figure out a way that I could see if there was some foundational DNA, something that all these great teams had in common. And then a second question came up, which is so many of the great teams that I'd been around had been amazing for one year, maybe two years. But then even with the same players and the same competition and strategy, they weren't able to sustain it. So I wanted to, to ask a second question as well, which is once you become great, how do you stay that way? What is it that holds a team together and creates a culture, a chemistry inside a team that it can use and rely on to continue to win? So those were the two questions. And I, and I stumbled into this thing very blindly. I thought, I'm going to write a column for the journal about this, 900 words. Maybe I'll study these teams for two weeks and try to come up with a list. And then I'll talk about what they had in common. And uh, just to give you a sense of, of what happened after that and the rabbit hole that I wound up going down, that was 12 years ago. Um, wow. The column never ran. It, it turned into a book, and it took me that long to do the research and to figure out the answer. Wow, that's incredible. So, you know, one of the stories that you open the book with um, is about this sort of uh, tipping point in, uh, I'll say soccer, but, you know, it's football for the rest of the world, um, in the world of soccer slash football. Um, I'd love it if you could sort of uh, tell us about that, you know, that exact moment and, and what that taught you, um, one of the initial learnings that you had about what it is that, that makes a winning team. Well, it was 1952, and back then, England was absolutely the world's ruling power in the sport of soccer. This team had never lost at home uh, against uh, any opponent from a foreign country, and they were absolutely dominant. They believed that when they played at home and they played their best, they could beat anybody, and this was an absolute belief among everyone in England. So, they scheduled a match, a friendly match with Hungary. Now, Hungary was a tiny nation at the time, really impoverished, you know, uh, going through a, a revolution and, and, and intense poverty, a small country. And this team from Hungary had been pretty good. They won the Olympic medal uh, the year before, but, you know, they hadn't really played elite level competition before. So they came to Wembley, which is the heart and soul of English soccer, where they had undefeated, you know, over the last 80 years. And everyone thought that it was going to be an absolute trouncing. The, the odds before the match were 500 to 1 in favor of the English. Nobody thought these Hungarians had a chance at all. This team came out and they were tiny. They were undersized. They had weird, low-slung soccer boots they'd never seen before. And these kind of tight-fitting tops, they looked very odd. No one was impressed by them. The English were even more confident when they walked out. But somebody told me, you have to get a hold of a tape of this match. So I got a hold of it. And he said, bring a stopwatch. And I said, why? He said, you'll see. So I started the tape and I clicked the stopwatch and I saw this incredible display of passing and tactics. And they scored a goal, the Hungarians against the English. And I clicked the stopwatch and it was 43 seconds was all it took them to score the first goal. Wow. They went on to destroy England. I mean, they, they destroyed him in this match, and no one could believe what they had seen. Uh, this team went on to, to be one of the greatest soccer teams in history. Uh, over five years, they really only lost one match uh, of consequence, and they, they were this indestructible force. And then 
all of a sudden the uh, the revolution in Hungary turned ugly, and the Russian tanks poured in, and a lot of the players who were on that team left Hungary, and the spell was broken. And that nation has never again put together any kind of team, even approaching that level of play. They were masters. They were incredible in, tactically, but they also had this this incredible ability to play together. They're, they weren't superstars. They weren't better athletes. There's just something about the combination of these players that made them leagues better than everybody else in the world, even coming from a place where no one would have expected it. So that was what I was after. What was it? What's the thing that makes this team so much more powerful than the sum of its parts? And that was one of the, the first things that set me off on, on this journey was, was that example. Yep. And I remember the exact example in the beginning of the match before you start the stopwatch, before anybody in England, you know, knew what was happening. Wasn't there the scene where the, the captain of the team, he took the ball and he started juggling with it. And juggling today is something that we think of as, I mean, everybody in soccer juggles, but it hadn't really been seen before. Um, and it was it's super interesting because I think this is also something that a lot of business owners, if they're looking at starting a business, they look at the type of team, the type of impact they want to make on the world. That's exactly what they want. They want other people to look at them and be like, I've never seen this before. You guys look a little, you look a little strange, but then within the first 60 seconds, you know, and for businesses, it would be a meteoric growth, you know, within the first year or even six months for other people to be like, well, you're clearly doing something right. I wonder what your magic formula is. So in this case, you know, what did you sort of find was, was the key? The only thing that bracketed their streak uh, this Hungarian team's streak of dominance was the arrival and departure of one player. And it was the captain of the team, Ferenc Puskas. Now, Puskas was a superstar. He scored a lot of goals. He was probably the best player, uh, best scorer on the team. But he was a very unusual guy. He was five foot five. He was overweight at times, as much as 40 pounds overweight during, huh. his, uh, during his playing career. And he couldn't dribble with his right foot, only his left. <laughs> <laughs> and and he didn't head the ball. He was a very strange self-taught player. Yeah. But he was also there was something about the way he led that team. He was a coach on the field. He was absolutely relentless. He was very communicative with his players, but not so much with the press or the media. He was very prickly. You know, even in this communist country where his coach was a member of the communist party, he pushed back on everything. Anything he thought was getting in the way of the team winning, he pushed back. And that juggling episode taught me something that that I didn't really understand about leadership. It was this kind of nonverbal cue to his teammates. Mm -hmm. This was the most difficult, charged moment of their playing careers. They were all terrified. And his little act of juggling kind of casually before the kickoff um, was both a sign that he wasn't intimidated, but it was also a way to to show the opponents that – that there was something different about them to sort of prepare them psychologically for what was about to happen. So everything the Hungarians did and, and everything that about their appearance was almost this kind of advanced strategic ops. You know, they were, they were playing this sort of psychological game and they loved being underestimated. I think there are a lot of lessons there. I mean, I think, I think the lesson that I learned was that, you know, the, the importance of internal leadership inside a group and what that leader does and how that leader actually behaves is really crucial, not only to making a team uh, achieve something great, but also keeping it there and allowing it to sustain that greatness through difficult times. <clears throat> you know, Frank Pushkas, this is a name that I'm sure nobody has ever heard of. When they think of international football, 
they think of you know Messi. They think, going back, they think of Pele or even right. more you know celebrity David Beckham. So, what are some of the misperceptions that people have about who leaders are? Because you know, if you asked somebody who are some of the leaders in international football, they would probably tell you, okay, it's these people who have extreme talent, um, probably people that are in the public eye, right? These almost celebrity Hollywood-like figures. So, you know, it sounds like you've found it to be almost the opposite of that. If you had asked me before I started this project to pick the ideal team captain, uh, and you gave me the keys to Frankenstein's laboratory and said, build one yourself, <laughs> I would have taken, I would have done, picked exactly that. I would have found a superstar, the, someone who has surpassing talent, the kind of person who takes the big shot with the game on the line, a Messi, a Pele, a Michael Jordan. Uh, I would have wanted someone with charisma, someone who was a great speaker, someone who was able to command uh, attention with their presence. And, you know, I would have also wanted someone who was um, very comfortable uh, and loyal to the team and, and who would always try to be a diplomat and bring the team together, um, you know, whenever they could and try to defuse conflicts. Uh, and I would have, um, you know, I would have also taken someone who was, uh, who was comfortable being a celebrity, you know, someone who was happy to have attention focused on them. So all of those things are what I think we all expect when we think about leadership. But what I found and what shocked me was not only that the captains were the keys to these teams and the ones who uh, held them together, but they were nothing like what I expected. Nothing. I mean, they weren't messy. It wasn't messy on Barcelona. It was this guy, Carlos Puyol, who was probably the worst athlete on the team. He was a central <laughs> defender, but he fit these criteria. He, 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 he wasn't one of these superstar people. He was a different kind of character. And the same thing happened over and over again. Pelé, you mentioned. So that Brazilian team was on my list of the greatest teams of all time. But he was never the captain. And I was mystified by this. I asked Pelé why he was never the captain. He said it was never even an issue. I didn't want to be. It made no sense. The captain of the team needed to be someone who spent all of their time focused on in every moment, 24-7, focused on whatever the team needed at that moment. And when you're a superstar, you really need to be left alone to focus on your game and to deal with the pressures of stardom. Everyone in Brazil understood this. And during their greatest run, the captain of the team was always someone you've never heard of. One of them was this guy, Bellini, who uh, was a central defender like Puyol, someone who never scored a goal in his entire career with Brazil. But he was, an, again, one of these below-the-radar uh, servants of the team, a water carrier, someone who was only focused on the collective goals and not on his own. So you see this over and over again. What I realized was that we have no idea what great leaders really do. And we've seen pieces of it. We talk about emotional intelligence. We talk about servant leadership. We talk about red teaming, uh, nonverbal communication. There, there are pieces of it out there. Mm -hmm. But what we don't realize is that when it comes time to pick a leader, most of us fall back on this notion we have. I don't know if it comes from Hollywood or, um, or what, but we think that a great leader has to be obvious. We think that a great leader has to have skills, talents, abilities, charisma, something that marks them as different from everybody else. We, we kind of expect it to be an easy person to find, an easy decision to make. The truth is great leaders are none of those things. In fact, they're better off if they're not superstars. They're better off in the shadows if they take no individual attention and they 
uh, are relentless. They play relentlessly. They communicate constantly. They have incredible emotional control and very good nonverbal communication skills as well. You know, there are these people that you never notice. You know, we're always looking forward, always looking at the stars and the people in our offices or, or on the field who are doing the remarkable things and, and participating in the big moments. But that's, that's not the real leader. Yep. And it's interesting that you mention defense versus offense because, you know, offensive play is the what people pay attention to. And it's what they think also in the workplace, what drives a business forward, you know, the forward momentum is growth and it's uh, strategic planning for acquisition or for new product development or all of the sort of, you know, more glamorous things. Whereas there needs to be somebody who's kind of playing defense, who's anticipating downturns in the market, who's looking at cost cutting. And those are the very unglamorous jobs that a lot of times we think of as being middle management. Um, but it's, you know, one of the, the people you mentioned in, uh, in your book is uh, Bill Russell. So, the Boston Celtics, right? Like he was not, he was, he wasn't Will Chamberlain, right? He was more focused on defense instead of offense. And he really had this sort of big picture view of what was going to be good for the team. And then whatever was going to be good for the team, he stepped into that role. And in this case, it was often defense. So what would you say to somebody who is running a business, who knows who their obvious A players are, but are sort of looking to find their defensive players, are looking to find the people that are going to to, you know, use the, the nonverbal communication, who have that emotional self-control, who can be relentless, uh, even under pressure. What are some of the ways that you can try to identify those people? Well, there's a very seductive uh, idea out there that an organization works better when it's flat, that it's good to get rid of middle management and to create an environment where the founders and executives of the company talk more directly to the star talent, the people who are actually doing uh, the, the big tasks that really uh, drive growth. So middle management is, is, is even more passe than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. But my, my advice to people is, here's the thing about leadership. And what I discovered on these teams and what I've seen in business as I've traveled around and talked to people is that in good times, when you're growing, when, when the curve is going skyward, you don't really see leadership. In fact, it's not really that important because everything's working. Everything seems to be going well. When you need leadership is when things go wrong, when, when the curve flattens or even drops. Mm. That's when you need these people because there's a tendency of, of executives and even coaches in sports to overfunction when things start to go bad. They start trying all the kinds of things and, and new theories and, and strategies. On the other side, you have star talent and, and they start looking at their resumes and thinking, I don't know, is this going to work out? Mm -hmm. What you need in the middle and what you have to look for are those people who do not care about their own individual accomplishments. They may not be flashy. They're not the first person that you want to trot out as the face of your company. Um, but what they do is that they care more about the collective. That's what their ego is based on. They, they rise and fall with the fortunes of the group. And they, they can be prickly. They push back when they think something's not going to work that they're being asked to do. But what they do is they understand both sides. They understand what management wants. They understand what the, the employees or the team is capable of. And they're able to have um, 
to execute by taking the best of both sides and coming up with an alternative that works. You have to find these people and you have to give them power. You have to enter a sort of partnership with them to allow them to do their work, but also give them the autonomy to make adjustments. And I found time and time again, that's really the meat of my book. I look for those moments when Bill Russell and the Celtics were on the ropes. You know, when all these great dynasties almost lost it or almost never became dynasties. Those are the moments I look for. And every single one of those moments, that's where you see leadership. That's where Bill Russell did something called the Coleman play, which is one of the most famous defensive efforts in NBA history. He missed a dunk in the final seconds of game seven of the NBA finals in his rookie year. And the St. Louis Hawks, who they were playing, inbounded the ball to midcourt. And their forward, Jack Coleman, had an easy look at the basket to make a simple layup. And no one in the building thought anything else could possibly happen other than him scoring two points. But right as the ball left his fingertips, this blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away. What, what Russell did was incredible. There's no video of this, sadly, so it's all in descriptions. He's starting under his his own basket. He was 96 feet away from the other basket. The guy with the ball caught it at a gallop at midcourt about half the distance. Russell somehow managed to cover the entire length of the floor in the same time it took Coleman to get to the basket, and he swatted the ball away. It was this incredible thing. No one saw it coming. No one could believe it happened. But what it showed me was that Russell understood this was a moment where this was either going to become a great team or it wasn't. And he took it upon himself to do something no one else would have even thought to try in order to try to preserve that, to allow it to happen. That's leadership. And that's when you see it. You don't see it when your, your, your fourth quarter earnings exceed expectations. You know, you see it when, when things are bad. You need someone in the middle who's going to hold the organization together, who's going to provide that continuity, who's thinking about the, the goals of the group and not their own. And these are what these leaders were. Half the time you don't notice them. Most of the time you don't notice them or even know who they are until you need them. And then if you don't have them, it's over. That's it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned in the book also that great leaders are like the verb in a sentence, right? So a lot of times you don't notice the verb, but the verb is what connects <clears throat> the entire sentence together. It's what gives it motion. But the, the adjectives and the subject, you know, all the other words get a little bit more attention. But if you didn't have the verb, it wouldn't exist. It sounds like that's exactly what these people would be. Yeah, no, it's a very dorky writer analogy, but, but I, I, it's the best I could do. And I, I think it's true because, you know, the only thing that a sentence has to have in order to provide that forward motion is, is that verb. It's that action word. It's that word that creates the momentum and holds everything together. And that's exactly the role. I mean, you, don't, you won't necessarily notice these people. In fact, they don't want to be noticed. All of these great captains that I studied on these elite dynasties all over the world were exactly the same and they all hated attention. They would get visibly uncomfortable when they were praised in public. They, Bill Russell turned down the Hall of Fame. He didn't want to be part of it because he didn't want to be part of an institution that was uh, celebrating an individual as opposed to the entire unit. Uh, time and time again, they did things like this. They turned down awards. They stayed out of the public eye. They let their teammates bask in the glory while they stayed behind. My favorite example of this is Carla Overbeck, who 
it was a member of the uh, 1999 U.S. women's team that won the World Cup, this famous team. Now, you've probably never heard of Carla Overbeck. You've heard of Mia Hamm. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain. Mm-hmm. That team was yep. full of these incredible superstars and great athletes and great talents. Carla Overbeck was the captain of this team, and she wanted nothing to do with the publicity. In fact, after they won the World Cup, she flew home. Everyone, all of her teammates went to, to Midtown Manhattan for this huge rally. They went on Letterman. They were the toast of the town. She wanted no part of it. She went home and, and I asked her what she was doing the day that all of her teammates were taking their, uh, their victory parade. And she said, I did three loads of laundry. I mean, she wanted nothing to do with glory and fame. All she cared yeah. about was they won the trophy. That was the entire uh, goal. That was the only thing her ego needed was that the team as a unit succeeded. She didn't care at yeah. all about individual uh, accolades. And that's not something we look for. In fact, if you do an interview and you see someone who's always deflecting the credit to others and has no interest and is uncomfortable being praised, you might think they're not a leadership candidate. I certainly would have. You might dismiss them as someone who doesn't have the, the that thing, that charisma, that confidence that you need to lead a team. The ax- absolute opposite is true. The best leaders are the people who don't think they're leaders, who only take the job, not for the prestige it conveys, because they just feel like they have to do the right thing. They know what to do. They want to take the job because they, they want to do whatever is necessary to help the team succeed. Yeah. I like how you said it's they know what to do because <clears throat> one of one of the things that Tony Robbins always says is there's no such thing as failure. There's just undesirable results. So <laughs> we always like to think of the journey, you know, the kind of the way to get to the end result. But in the case of Bill Russell, in the case of Carla, like they had an end result in mind and they had a singular focus and that focus was to achieve that outcome. And they were willing to do whatever they needed to do in order to achieve that outcome. But at the end, you know, when it was done, when it was over, whether it was failure or success, they moved on. And that's really interesting because I think that's a quality that not a lot of people in professional environments are necessarily encouraged to do. I mean, we're surrounded by distraction. We see all sorts of obstacles in our path and there isn't necessarily always the visibility to the end result. So as a business owner, um, maybe one of the ways to kind of open up that path to leadership is to make sure that that end result for the business is visible so that the people who are sort of in their DNA to be able to, to, to achieve that, um, to put everything in motion that needs to happen in order to achieve that end result, that they'll at least have clarity of what it's supposed to be. Right. Clarity is very important. And, and I think that having goals and having uh, very strong ideas of where you want to take the business is smart. But, you know, one of the things that I think we underestimate is one of the real enemies of uh, sustaining success is success itself. So many companies will, will ha- or teams will have a, a big moment, will win a championship. And a lot of people are, are just, they're satisfied by that. They get their ring, they got their bonus. They, you know, they had a great year. They're very happy. These captains, you said, they left it behind. There was a relentlessness to them. There was almost an expectation that things should go well. They, they were an interesting kind of people because they weren't necessarily the most skilled or the most talented, but they saw everything, every failure as a challenge to do better. They always thought it was just a matter of choosing a different strategy or trying a different tactic. So to them, success was the normal thing. Success was just what 
you're expected to do. They didn't linger in their accomplishments. They didn't bask in them. That was the outcome that was supposed to happen. And, you know, it's hard to identify these people, but they're such an asset in your business or on a team because they keep you grounded and they never stop. They never pause to pat themselves on the back. They're always looking at the next challenge. And that's the difference. So many teams achieve something great for whatever reason, but they don't sustain it. And that's the key to sustenance. It's finding somebody who expects that result and who is willing to do anything. There's a a theory that a Harvard professor named Richard Hackman, who passed away several years ago, and his ideas about teams, I think, are, are really undervalued. And one of the things he talked about was that on a team, the only thing that matters is something he called functional leadership. He said, all that matters is that all the essential functions of leadership on a team get done. That's all that matters. It doesn't even matter if the captain, the leader performs them so long as they're done. And it's that mentality. It's that 24-7, what do I need to do right now to make this group function better? That's what these people did. And that's what they focused on. They weren't, they, they didn't do speeches. They didn't give big speeches. They weren't people who used grand gestures. It was, it was a very functional approach to leadership. And these people are hard to find. We're, we don't, we're not trained to look for them. We have to find different ways to look at the dynamics of the group to find them. But once you find someone like that, you've got an enormous asset and you need to make sure, as you said, that the goals are clear and that that person has the tools they need uh, and that you understand their motivations enough to give them the space to work. Yeah. And also trust them enough that if they come at you with a different approach, that they're not doing it out of ego or just or just to, you know, be a dissident, that they're doing it for a reason. Um, I think it's it's interesting because Tony has this um, this concept of matchers and mismatchers that originally stems from metaprograms. And it's the idea that you can uh, put up a couple of, you know, shapes with different colors in front of somebody and 75, I think to 80% of the room will see what's, what's uh, alike, right? They'll say, okay, those two are yellow rectangles or those are both circles and in gray, right? But there are always going to be people in the room who mismatch, who see what's wrong. And it's interesting because some of the leaders that you identify in the book, some of these captains of sports teams, they, you know, they often, well, they would go along with what the coach said, but if they disagreed, they wouldn't go along with it. Um, so in that sense, they were sort of like dissidents. Um, can you, are there any good examples that uh, you could pull out of, of captains who, you know, kind of went against what the coach said um, yes. for, for a higher purpose. Yeah, no, my favorite example of all time is the Soviet ice hockey team in 1980. And you might remember this team because of something called the Miracle on Ice. This is when the U.S. beat the Soviet Union in the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid uh, in hockey. And this was the biggest upset, one of the biggest upsets in sports history. This was a team of American college students who beat the Russians. And the Russians were professionals. They were members of the Army who trained 11 months a year. They had dominated that sport for years and years. So they lost this, this game, which is all most Americans remember. But they don't know what happened afterwards. And I certainly didn't know. What happened afterwards is this team got on an airplane and they left Lake Placid to fly back to Moscow. Now, after the match, the coach of this team, Viktor Tikhonov, 
uh, who was a real taskmaster. He told them, look, this is a story we're going to tell in Moscow. We lost as a team. We all share blame equally. We'll get through this. We'll make adjustments. We'll come back better. That's what he told the players. So on the plane, he was telling something else to his assistants. He was sitting in the first-class cabin, just bad-mouthing individual players, really going after a lot of people he thought were responsible for the loss. What he didn't know was that Valery Vasilyev, who was a, defense, a defenseman on the team, who uh, had been on the team for several years, could hear every word he was saying. He was in the cockpit at the time talking to the pilots. So he overheard this. Now here, let me paint the scene for you. So this is the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, and, I was going to say. I mean, you <laughs> at know, a very critical time in history as well. At a really critical time. Yeah. So this was the height of, of Soviet uh, paranoia. And this was the worst humiliation probably that the Soviet Union suffered during the Cold War. I mean, this loss to the Americans in their own ice. So they didn't know what was going to happen. And then when they got back to Moscow, they could all be sent to the gulag for all they knew. Uh, mm-hmm. There were Communist Party officials sitting on the plane. I mean, it was the last place in the world you would ever think that you would try to um, dissent or to do some act of rebellion. So what did Vasiliev do? He came charging out of the cockpit, and he grabbed his coach, Tikhonov, by the neck, and he started shaking him. Wow. He said, I will throw you off this plane right now if you don't take back what you said. And ultimately, he was hauled away, and uh, they landed in Moscow. And of course, you would think I, this story had never been told, and, and I had to tease it out of some of his teammates. So you would think, okay, what's going to happen? He's going to jail, and the team is going to implode, yeah. right? So what happened instead was a few months later, the team was asked to elect a captain, and they voted for Vasilyev. Mm. And at that moment, at that precise moment, they came out and they just started crushing everybody. So for the next four years, this team was unbelievable. The best hockey team on skates of all time. They beat everyone. They won every championship. They played a group of NHL all-stars, including Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr, the best, the best all-star team Canada ever had. They beat them eight to three. They just destroyed everybody. So I went back because I needed to figure out how this is possible. And what I found out was that there's, there's something at work here. There's a, there's a kind of conflict inside a team that is actually healthy. And there's a kind of conflict that's toxic. And the difference in this case was that Vasiliev came to practice the next day after he tried to choke his coach on the airplane. And what did he do? He said, hey, coach. You know, he, he laced up his skates. He went on the ice. He went back to work. So the difference is there's, this, there's one kind of conflict that's personal. When he attacked his coach, it wasn't a personal attack. It was something else. There's a kind of conflict called task conflict. This is when you, the argument is really about what's good for the team or making sure the team is able to compete and play well together. And this is what he was doing. He was trying to hold his team together in what he knew was a very desperate, pivotal moment. And by attacking his coach, he wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. He was doing it for the good of the, of the group. Mm-hmm. And everyone seemed to recognize this. Even in the Soviet Union, they figured this out. And the result was that the team was unified around his leadership. And he had the respect to the coaches. There was a lot of conflict. He was able to talk to them and, and, uh, and to talk frankly with them about what was good for the team. But right away, at a moment where you think the whole team would have fallen apart, instead they turned into this unstoppable force. So that's really important. A lot of times we look at someone who creates conflict, someone who pushes back, someone who's always got an opinion about how things can be do, done better. And we think that that conflict is bad. We think that these kinds of people are negative forces. But really, 
we have to look at their motivations for doing it and what their goals are. And we have to stop throwing away or um, uh, disregarding people who uh, are constantly um, agitating for, for things to be a different way. We have to understand that sometimes it's coming from the right place. And sometimes you have to just give in and allow it to happen and allow, uh, allow these players to, um, uh, to tell you what to do. And oh, time and again, that's what I saw. The great coaches and the great captains had a lot of conflict in their relationships and a lot of tough discussions. And in the end, it always made the team better. Yeah. I think if you look at how that gesture also reflects on the audience, so the, the players who were looking at that take place, um, you know, you note in the book that we're, we're sort of genetically programmed to have a positive response to actions that are, that are brave, that are steadfast, that show a fierce commitment to leadership. And that's something that if I were a member of a team and I saw that happening and I saw, you know, my captain standing up for me, um, that would be a huge bond of loyalty. And, you know, the other thing, the fact that he came back the next day and he, you know, apologized and moved past it also showed that there was no emotion. There was no grudge. There was nothing sort of um, showing a lack of self-control in his action. And that's something else that you note in the book is that this remarkable level of emotional self-control and that there was a study that, you know, we tend to glamorize the emotional players and the people who kind of like put on these acts of emotion on the court or on the pitch or on the field. And that's something that's interesting because there's actually a negative result from quote, playing angry or from demonstrating over emotion. And I think that also reflects on people watching you as well. Like I think there's a, there's a level to which we appreciate it, but then once you go over the top, you start looking down on that person. There's such a, uh, an interesting point here that I never knew and never imagined, which was a real revelation to me, which is that you look at aggressive play and especially in sports, you know, it's true in business too. There are people who just push the boundaries of what's acceptable and yeah. interpersonally. And a lot of times it's very easy to think, to look at them from the lens of normal behavior and to think, okay, this is this person is not fit for leadership. This person is a loose cannon. This person is uh, not really in control of themselves emotionally. What I saw over and over again with these athletes was that they often did things that were ugly or brutal or aggressive mm -hmm. uh, in competition, but there was, a, there was an important difference. And uh, the best example I can give of this is a team that I never knew anything about that ended up on my list of the greatest teams. It's the greatest Olympic team of all time, male or female. It's the Cuban women's volleyball team from 1990 to 2000. I'd never heard of them. For 10 years, they did not lose a match of consequence. And they beat everyone in the world. And this is a tiny, poor country of 9 million people. I mean, it's amazing what they accomplished. They didn't have the best athletes at all, but there was something about them. They, they were incredible force. So Here's the example that I think is interesting. In, in the Atlanta Olympics in 1996, this team was six years into their big run, but they were demoralized. They, they lost um, something. They, they lost a couple of important matches in, in the early rounds. And it looked like their run was going to end right there. And uh, they got to the semifinals and they were going to play Brazil. And Brazil was really their, their top competition in the world. And the captain of this team is a woman named Maria Luis. Uh, and Maria Luis was one of these one of these characters I talked about. Now, 
she decided to do something that was very unconventional. She knew she had to find some way to shore up her team and to try to intimidate the Brazilians because she could feel it slipping away. So what she did was she told her teammates in a private meeting away from the coaches, she said, here's what we're going to do in this match with Brazil. We're going to throw the most vicious insults we can think of at the Brazilians across the net. And her teammates looked at her like she was crazy. What do you mean? She said, I'm talking about the worst things one woman can say to another. <laughs> and they were all kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, there's trash talking in volleyball, but not, not yeah, like that. Yeah, but not a lot. Yeah. But you, also volleyball, you can hear every word that people are saying. It's yes. not like other sports where you're running all over the place and there's noises and you're not, you know, in a closed space. I mean, you can definitely hear everything that's happening. Yeah, you're facing each other, right? Oh, so yeah. you, can, you can hear but, everything. But there's and- an invisible shield, you know, because you can't reach, there's no physical contact. So all that anger, if somebody's insulting you, you can't get it out in like a little shove or a push or anything like you can in football. Yep. Yeah, no. And the mind games are really interesting in volleyball. It's oh, definitely yeah. a psychological sport. But um, mm-hmm. all right. So so this is this is what happened. All right. This is one of the craziest stories. So they started slowly. Like they lost the first set and it wasn't looking good for them. And Maria Luis started shouting some really nasty insults. And the Brazilians complained to the referee and he gave her a yellow card and then they'd get another yellow card later. But the, over time, the, the, the match was very close. I went to a fifth set. And by then you could see that the name calling had really started to work on the Brazilians. They were, they were angry. They were overplaying. They were too aggressive. They, they, their body language, you could see they were really um, uh, out, of their, out of their heads. And at the same time, you could see the impact it had on the Cubans, which is they kind of got that swagger they always had back, and they started playing with a lot more confidence. So in the end, uh, they wound up winning this match, and uh, the the Cubans did. They just eked it out in the fifth set. But there was so much emotion and so much anger in the room that uh, afterwards, in the in the tunnel in the locker room in Atlanta, uh, one of the players bumped another player, and it turned into this giant brawl. And I mean, there were punches, wow. you know, they were, they were throwing things. It was really awful. They had 10 Atlanta police had to come to break this thing up. Uh, and it took them a long time to separate these teams. So this was one of the worst things that ever happened in volleyball. Volleyball officials were horrified. It was a big embarrassment. The Cubans were booed at the medal ceremony. And, uh, you know, Maria Luis was really vilified as the ringmaster for this. So I went to Havana and, and I asked her about this. And I said, how in the world is that leadership. You know, that just seems like like something we're all taught not to do. And what I learned from her is something that I think is important for all of us in our careers. You don't, that's, I'm not advocating what she did. I'm not celebrating what she did. You shouldn't do things like that. It's, it violates the spirit of the rules. There are things in business you shouldn't do. But here's the thing, here was her motivation. She wanted to keep her team going. She wanted to win. She wasn't angry. It wasn't personal. It was what they call instrumental aggression. She didn't want to hurt anyone. She wanted to help her team. If people got hurt along the way, fine. But the real goal was to win. And she told me something that really surprised me that I had to go fact check because I wanted to make sure it was true. She said that during this exchange, all she did, she was the only member of these two teams who was trying to break up the fight. 
She didn't want anyone to get hurt. She had reverted back. She left the, the rules of sports and reverted back to the rules of polite society where you don't fight. She was trying to separate the two sides. She understood that there was a difference. There's a kind of aggression that's hostile and negative. And there's a kind mm -hmm. of aggression that is important in sports and sometimes in business where you have to push things as far as you think you can push them to get away with them in order to sustain a winning effort. And Again, this is difficult to wrap your head around, and it's hard for me to tell people what to do or what not to do. But I think we all know that there are times in, in a collective effort where you need to push things right to the edge of what's acceptable. And these captains never hesitated to do it. And what I saw was that was the common thread. The aggression they had uh, was part of this emotional control that you mentioned. They, they didn't do things out of anger. They never acted out of personal anger or hostility. Everything they did, even if it looked like they were angry, even if it looked like choking your coach is not something that you do if you're not angry, right? But they weren't. It was mm -hmm. tactical. It was designed yeah. to do something larger to help the goal of the group. And I think the, the lesson for people in business is if you see someone who does these things, you know, don't immediately disqualify them from leadership. You just have to take a really hard look at why they did it and what their goals were. Because sometimes you can be thrown off uh, from, from a potentially great leadership candidate by behavior that looks really negative, but is actually coming from a, a, the right place. I mean, the question of morality in sports is something that has actually been studied. So you mentioned there's a there was a study in Berkeley in the 80s where they talked to athletes and they talked about you know morality within competition, like what's what what kind of behavior is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it seems like they all came out with the same conclusion that if you're trying to hurt people just for the sake of inflicting pain, that's not okay. But roughing them up for the purpose of rattling them or distracting them or to your point about meeting some sort of end goal, that that was okay. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. It's like when, you know, when you think of that in the business context, some of the implications uh, for that kind of open a lot of doors that I think people might think uh, were previously closed because they're trying to adhere to sort of a strict moral behavior. It's true. You know, it's, it's called the game frame. And that's what the researchers called it. They said, and they pointed out that the rules of sports are different from the rules of polite society. You know, if you're in a hockey rink, you can punch somebody in the face. And that's oh, yeah. and they allowed, do. <laughs> and they do. Yeah. And there's a penalty for that. You go to the penalty box, but it's 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 contained within the rules. Whereas two feet away, if you did that in the stands, you're going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. So, but these great athletes understand that this this game frame is different. The thing that that these athletes had that others didn't. I found a lot of great leaders who. Um, they were very aggressive in competition, but also off the field. They got in trouble. They got in brawls. Roy Keane, who was the great captain of Manchester United, is my favorite example of this. He, you know, he was famous for being a great aggressive player uh, on the field, but off the field, you know, he would keep getting arrested in bar brawls. He just wasn't able to shut that anger off. Mm -hmm. The difference with these great leaders, they understood the context. So when they were in the game frame, they would do things they would never do off the field. But the minute the game was over, like Maria Luis, it just switched off. They went back and they reverted to the rules of polite society. They understood that there was a difference. And that is incredibly important and something that um, 
that's hard to find and, and hard to, uh, to understand when you see it. You have to look really closely to make sure that you understand what you're seeing in these cases. And yeah. uh, aggression is important. And, you know, you look at in the business world, I mean, a lot of people look at Steve Jobs. And you know, Steve Jobs is, is someone who would routinely make, bring people to tears, you know, I'm because sure. he was so hard on them for, for their work and, and their products. And a lot of people would look at him from outside the context of, of business and say, um, he's a jerk. You know, he's just a, he's not a role model. He's not someone you want to emulate as a, as a leader, as a corporate leader. Um, but, you know, when you think of it in this context and you think about a very competitive business and his desire to build the best products he possibly could, uh, you had to wonder, you know, was he, was he a jerk or was he just pushing the limits of what's acceptable in business to the outside edge? And, and that's a question we can all spend some time thinking about. Yeah. Well, you know how they say all's fair in love and war. Um, well, Tony at his business event, that's, he starts off day one. He says, look, business is a battlefield. It's war. And in order to survive, you need to be a gladiator. That's not to say that there aren't any rules, but if you know the rules and you know how to succeed within that framework and also, you know, bringing in your own talents and your own resources, it's like, that's really the formula for success. Um, and he, of course, uses Steve Jobs as a, a, a great example of a visionary leader, someone who had that end result in mind and would do whatever it would take in order to get his company to that. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, they, one of the things that um, I think is important and, and is a great takeaway in business, are, there are two sides of this book. And in the end, I came up with seven traits that all of these elite captains had. And what was fascinating about these traits is that talent and charisma were had nothing to do with it. There was no, no God-given ability there. Everything that these captains did in these tough moments to bring their teams through were matters of behavior. It was all behavior. It was the choices that we make every day, 24-7 in every context. And we always have to have the large goals of the team in mind. Now, the skills that you need, the skill set, these seven traits that they all demonstrated, um, are very important and they come into play at different times. And there are two of them that I think are really important in a business context. The first is that emotional control that you talked about. And these athletes were had incredible emotional control. They had the ability to block out the worst kinds of personal tragedies or uh, injuries, horrible injuries, uh, in order to keep playing at a high level. And my favorite example of that comes from handball which is a sport that most Americans know nothing about. It's a huge mm -hmm. sport in Europe, a very big sport in the rest of the world, but Americans don't know much about it. It, it is a very fascinating and fun game to watch. But the French team uh, that I mentioned, the greatest handball team of all time, the French men's team, uh, starting in about 2009, um, had this captain named Jerome Fernandez. And Fernandez, this was in 2009, before his team had established itself as a dynasty, and they were playing Croatia in the finals of the World Championships, which is the biggest match he had ever been in. And he had just been named captain. A lot of people on the team weren't sure if he was the right choice because he was one of these sort of behind-the-scenes guys. He wasn't a big rah-rah person, big personality. So two days before the final, he got a phone call from his mother in Bordeaux. And she told him that his father was in the hospital and he was dying of cancer. He had only days to live. And Fernandez had no idea this was happening. They had not told him on purpose because they wanted him to focus on the world championships. But now they had to tell him because they didn't know how much longer he had. So he was in this awful situation where he had to decide what to do. And he made two extraordinary decisions that I think show you the level of emotional control. The first was he decided to stay and play. 
uh, even even you know if his father died, he was gonna he was gonna play. The second thing was that he decided not to tell anyone. He didn't tell any of his teammates what was going on. He didn't want to distract them. He didn't want to do anything that might upset the balance and the chemistry of the team. So this match came, and they were huge underdogs. He not only played well, he played one of the best matches of his career. He scored the clinching goal in the final minute. And when it was over, he collapsed on the court and started sobbing. And his teammates had no idea what was going on. He was injured. When they found out what happened, they were amazed. They couldn't believe that he had done this for them and had done something so courageous and showed such emotional fortitude. And from that moment on, I, I, he's a very humble guy, as they all are. But I asked him about this, and he said, you know, I felt that what happened was when they saw me do this, they realized that I was a collective captain, not a personal captain. They understood that everything he did was motivated by the goals of the group. And that's how this emotional control can help because it solidified his leadership and helped this team turn into one of the great dynasties in the history of sports. That is so important. And, you know, if we think about the decisions we make every day at the office and the things that we say that we probably shouldn't, or the times where something bad is happening in our personal lives, we let it get to us, we let it affect our performance. Mm -hmm. uh, it happens all the time. It's a very easy adjustment to make. You, you have to take the mindset. You have to find the people that have this mindset where they say, I don't care what's going on with me. You know, when I'm in this context, when I'm at the office, when I'm on the team, that is my priority and nothing else is going to creep in. It's very hard to do, but I think the advantages are obvious. Yeah. And there's a time and a place too, right? So, I mean, you don't want to have employees who never talk about their personal life or, you know, show moments of weakness. It's just a matter of, yeah, there's a time and a place. If you're on a deadline, if you're, you know, in a creative brainstorm meeting, meeting and sort of understanding the context and, and when is the right time to, to be personal and when is the right time to, to be in, uh, in warrior mode, I'd say. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to pick and choose. And I think, I think we're talking about leadership here. And I think when you're a leader, sure. I think it's really crucial to think about these things. Um, other people that yeah. aren't in that position probably have a lot more leeway. But um, I think if you really want to create uh, that sense, a collective sense of um, uh, power and uh, purpose, I think it's really mm -hmm. important. Yeah. What's the other one of the seven um, that you think is really important in the business context? This blew me away. I was not prepared to find this when I found these captains. The one thing that I never saw coming was that they did not give speeches. Mm. Yeah, because we have this idea of, you know, the locker room speech. Or, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's crazy. No, it's Hollywood. You know, that's the standard thing. It doesn't matter if it's sports or war or you know anything else. There's always a big speech. The leader gives a speech, right? That's what they do. And, you know, we all look back at the great addresses of Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King, and we think that's how you move people. That's how you motivate and get into their souls is through, you know, this dramatic uh, oratory, right? Well, I just couldn't believe it. They, they, none of them, not one of them liked giving speeches. In fact, some of them did not do it, never addressed the group as a whole, just absolutely didn't like to do it. Uh, I didn't understand this. I was like, how can you lead when you don't talk to the group, when you don't use your words? So I started looking into this and I realized that I was completely wrong about this in that these athletes did use words. Now, my example that I always love to talk about is Tim Duncan. And Tim Duncan was the captain for a long time uh, of the San Antonio Spurs, who retired last season. And he was the last person you would ever call a great 
a charismatic communicator. He, you listen to interviews with him. He has this monotone that he speaks in. He, he has a personality of a vacuum cleaner, basically. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. I mean, he just seemed to be not interested whatsoever yeah. in attention. And, and you mentioned people too, said he was boring. Yep. Yeah, and you mentioned too that even you know if you walked into the locker room and you saw him or into a practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader because there's nothing in his his body language, his mannerisms, or the way that he carried himself that suggests that he's like an alpha, right? And I think we have this idea that, especially with sports dominated by men, that they really need to be like the alpha male and that it's very obvious who it is. It's true. That's why I think a lot of teams and a lot of companies just make their best person the leader, their star, because we think that those God-given qualities are things that also equate to leadership. You know, no matter what we know or how much we read or how much we study, I think we all fall back on that idea. Leadership, a leader has to uh, show command, has to be someone who uh, mm-hmm. you can see easily. So here's Tim Duncan, who whose team had this incredible 19-year stretch where they never missed the playoffs. They put together the highest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. No one will ever beat it. I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable run that they had. And here's someone who is, is the opposite of charismatic. So I had to do a lot of work to figure out what was really going on. And what I found was Tim Duncan is not quiet. Tim Duncan doesn't give speeches. He doesn't talk to publicly. He's not someone who, who says much. But what I found when I watched him play and watched their practices and paid attention was that here's what Tim Duncan does. He circulates. He moves around. He talks to everybody, everyone. He's comfortable approaching everyone on the team. And he will talk to them in the moment in very short Bursts with a great deal of energy. He listens too. He listens as much as he talks. He mm, also so he's you, very democratic. Yeah, no, he circulates, yeah. and he also has this thing. He has like three facial expressions, you know, and <laughs> that's it. But I mean, he uses his eyes, and you can tell immediately by looking at his face. He's he's shocked and angry. He's you know proud of you, uh, or or he's happy. And, and and you know it's 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 very easy to see because he's very clear. His expressions are very clear. He uses his body language. He touches people. He um, gets right in their face. He's very good at communicating one-on-one. So I saw this happening. I realized that that's the pattern of communication that uh, really works inside teams to build cohesiveness. And I found this study that was done at MIT, which was fascinating. So MIT has this, these badges. They're, they're, uh, you wear it like a name tag, but it's really a digital recorder, and it records every interaction that every member of a team has uh, throughout the course of a day. And they would put these on teams, and they would look at them and look at the data that they generated and compare that to how well the team actually performed. And what they found was on the highest performing teams, the only thing that mattered was that was communication. That was the number one thing that they did. It didn't matter if they had more talent or they'd been together longer. Nothing mattered as much as their communication pattern. What they found in that pattern was the data signature of someone that they called a charismatic connector. And this person did exactly what Tim Duncan did. They walked around, they talked to everyone in short bursts. They listened as much as they spoke. In fact, everyone in these teams talked. Everyone spoke. The Spurs were famous because they talked more than any NBA team. They're constantly talking to each other on the floor, on the bench. There's a very talkative culture. And I realized that was what Tim Duncan was. He was this charismatic connector that the scientists talked about. That was the pattern. And that is how you actually help a team through communication. It doesn't matter. The speeches don't matter. You can just leave them. It's about your 
daily interactions constantly in the moment. Because what these teams do is that they, they have this talkative mentality. So when things go wrong, they address it in the moment. They address it right away. Someone talks about it, they're talking about it. Nothing festers. There's no uh, ill will that comes. Everything's on the table. Everything's put out there. All of these captains did this. None of them give speeches, but inside the context of the team, they were totally different. They were very vocal, some of them. On the field, they were constantly giving directions and talking to teammates and, and, and being involved. Uh, and they had the credibility to do it because they were servants of the team, because everyone knew that they wanted the team to win and didn't care about their individual accolades. Everyone listened to everything they said. They had credibility, and they used that credibility to turn the team into a talkative place where, where problems were addressed, where solutions were found, where everything was on the table always. And it's something we, it's so easy to do for a leader. It's something in business, it's so easy to just walk around and talk to everyone with great energy and listen to what they have to say. Those kinds of interactions are the secret to effective communication. And it's, I think it's the first thing that, that a manager can do or a team leader in business can do to improve the performance of their group. It's just get out of your office, start talking to people, put some energy and thought into what you do. Use your touch, use your facial expressions, you know, really try to, to work on your one-on-one -on -one communication and leave the speeches because they don't seem to make any difference whatsoever. Yeah. There's so much power in under understated communication. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I, uh, I just found some Onion articles. Um, like you had mentioned some of them in the book. And if I encourage everybody, go to the Onion, look up Tim Duncan. They're really funny. Like Tim Duncan hams it up for crowd by arching left eyebrow slightly. <laughs> um, there's one where he encourages everyone at the All-Star game to use inside voice. <laughs> I mean, these are these are really good. Um, you know, it's interesting as you're talking about, you know, within sports and particularly these leaders have this quality, the ability to be constantly communicating with everyone and to solve problems as soon as they come up. I think this is really powerful in the workplace environment. I think also with personal relationships. So somebody who within a partnership, like within a relationship, instead of letting things fester, um, can bring them up immediately, it's like you solve the problem before it even becomes a bigger one. So before it starts spiraling into something huge. Um, so I think this is something that, you know, kind of has applications beyond just the workplace within and within sports um, with all personal relationships. I think that's a really interesting way to communicate. Yeah, I think part of it that, that we often forget is that when we become leaders, when we're tapped for leadership, we don't understand what that means. And I think part of the problem is that even people who have the right qualities have a distorted picture of what leaders do. So when they're chosen to lead, they start to do things that are counterproductive. They start barking out orders. They, they take it upon themselves to, um, to admonish people, to, um, uh, to give commands, to demand certain things. And you know that's really counterproductive. I think the, the real lesson in what I found in all these behaviors is that you have to earn this position. None of these captains were captains the minute they showed up on these teams. They had a time to kind of learn and figure out what kind of behavior they needed to do. But it was that question of credibility. It was that question of being able to show your teammates what you really wanted, who you really were. 
And that was the thing that Tim Duncan had a chance to do too early on in his career. Everyone understood who he was and they knew that when he did something in a leadership role or when he talked to them or gave them a, a suggestion or even an order, they knew where it was coming from. And it's so important to, to think about that, to think about how you present yourself and to make sure that before you start to really function and to do the things that leaders do, that you have the respect uh, and understanding of everyone in the room. And my favorite example of this is, again, Carla Overbeck, who is such a great example of what I'm talking about. She was the captain of this team. And as we've already said, she was someone who didn't care about individual attention, but what did she do inside the team? She knew she had to build this credibility. She knew that she had to, um, to, to be someone that the, the team uh, looked to and understood. So they would go on these long road trips and you know, they would fly to Norway and they would be exhausted and, and they would get off of the plane and, and everyone would just collapse in their hotel rooms. And inevitably they would get a knock on the door and they would open the door. And it was Carla Overbeck who had carried their bags from the team bus to their rooms. Wow. She's the captain of the team and she carried <laughs> yeah. the luggage. That's you know, an unglamorous task. Right. <laughs> but that yeah. was the mentality. She did everything she could. She would always lay off the ball immediately. She didn't score. She didn't try to do anything dazzling herself. She was always trying to give to her teammates and make them better. And that level, of, her teammates said this. They said, you knew that when Carla was getting on you for something on the field, you knew it was genuine. You knew it was coming from the right place. And that's something we have to remember as leaders, that when we get the leadership job, you have to think about leading from the back. That's what all, all of these characters did. They they were only thinking about the team's goals, but they didn't need to be at the forefront. They didn't want to be at the forefront. They didn't want to be the loudest voice in the room. They were sitting back, looking around, trying to decide what needed to be done. They were water carriers, most of them. They were not stars. Yeah. They had to take that mentality. And most of us don't do that. You know, we get tapped as the leader of the group and like, all right, we come in in our best suit the next day and we raise our yeah. voice two octaves <laughs> and we start telling people what to Which do. Which is completely counterproductive. I'm really glad you mentioned, um, you know, they, they're, they're back. That, okay. Where I'm going with this is... I think one of the challenges that business owners have today is, you know, their own sense of leadership. Sure, they want to cultivate it. They want to be doing what's right. Um, but another big challenge that business owners are facing is how do they identify the next generation of leaders? How do they bring them into their organization? So whether it's finding somebody, um, you know, sort of more entry, mid-level and bringing them into their organization um, and, and, you know, helping them grow, or even if it's an executive search, right? You're trying to find somebody that you don't know already and bring them in to lead your organization. Nowadays, um, everything is so public, right? So you'd looked on, you would look on LinkedIn, you would look at people's social media presence. But from everything you've said, it almost sounds like the best leaders are the ones who may not even have a social media presence. Yes. They may not boost their LinkedIn profile because they don't care about their own personal ego or maybe their own personal career. So, you know, and if you looked on, look on LinkedIn, you look at resumes or even you look at recommendations, the way that people recommend others to you, they're full of words or phrases that are so cliche, right? Like they go above and beyond, they're a team player. And they're all these, this whole sort of nomenclature around leadership that we're really accustomed to. Are there 
some phrases or sort of behavioral qualities that you think if I'm looking to hire somebody who would be one of these leaders that I should be looking for in that person's public presence that I would that I could hone in on them and be like okay they are the one that I want yes it's a great question and there are definitely some ways to do this as I said before you you run the risk of missing these people in an interview because they're not going to wow you. They're not going to impress you. They're not going to win the job in an interview. They're not the kinds of people who love talking about themselves and touting their accomplishments. So you have to set that aside. I think one of the first things that you should do is absolutely set your first impressions aside. Uh, whatever they are, they're not important. The one thing I understood with these captains was that personality is really irrelevant. Some of them were outgoing and kind of a little extroverted. Most of them were not. Um, some of them were um, uh, interesting and, and had a lot of opinions about things. Some of them barely said a word. So, you know, personality can be really um, dangerous as something that you, um, that you look for in a leader. The other thing is I think we're all conditioned to look for people that are interesting, not just interesting mm-hmm. in their work, but off the off the world, off the field, you know, at home, we look. We like triathletes. We like gourmet chefs. We like people who yeah, have, people who have lived abroad. Yeah, or, yeah. No, yeah. no. We always it's this weird thing where we kind of gravitate to those people. But what I found sure. over and over again with these great leaders of these teams that sustained success was they were so boring. I mean, they. It's not that they never got in trouble, which they didn't. They would go home and they wanted nothing to do with anyone. And most of them just would, would keep to themselves. They were very private. A lot of them had very happy home lives, but they, they mm. just did not do anything interesting. And I think you see this um, in a lot of great business leaders too. You see that they're really not interesting. They, they, they really like to sleep. I mean, they like to go home and, and <laughs> recover themselves because the yeah. workplace, the, the, the job is where they really put all of that passion. And, sure. Well, you know, athletes sleep a lot. I you know. know. Athletes are all about peak performance and Exactly. They, they take care of themselves um, in order to be their best self when they're out on the field. Right. And that's something that I think we're, we, we don't always appreciate. I mean, I think it's okay to be yeah. boring. Now, one of the things that um, I would really recommend to people, and I, I've not tried this myself. I haven't done it because in a job interview, but I think that it's worth trying. It's something that I call the mm-hmm. sneaky praise test. And this is a hmm. surefire way to figure out uh, where someone's coming from. I, what, this is what I would recommend. I would say that when some job candidate comes in, at some point in the interview, you want to look at their resume and you want to say, you know, this is really amazing what you did here. Like you took this team from nothing and you, you know, you had this incredible result and, and, and you know, you're, you must be an amazing leader. I mean, to be able to pull those people together, really lay it on thick. I mean, just go as yeah. far as you can. <laughs> and you know what you want to, you know what you're looking for. Now, if the person's nodding and, and they're really good at taking compliments, that's okay. What you're mm-hmm. looking for here is you're looking for someone who's visibly uncomfortable. And I've seen this over and over again. Tim mm. Duncan, when he won the NBA's Rookie uh, of the Year Award, go back and look at the photos. I mean, he looked like he was getting a colonoscopy. He, was, <laughs> he wanted nothing to do with it. And I just watched yeah. an interview that was done by the BBC with Richie McCaw. And Richie McCaw is, was the captain of the New Zealand All Blacks, this incredible rugby team uh, that, that made my list of the greatest teams of all time. And it was with the BBC and this woman at the end of the interview just went on and on about him. And, you know, he's probably the most popular person in New Zealand. He's a huge celebrity there, but a very low-key guy who really doesn't like the spotlight. And watching his reaction is amazing. He just wanted to crawl out of his skin. He wanted to leave. I thought he was going to pull off his microphone and leave. He just looked stricken. 
And that's the response that you want. I think we're, we're not conditioned to look for that. But if you see that kind of this just kind of almost visceral, um, visceral, yeah, you know, hatred. Yeah, and also of- I think people too who would quickly like their mind would then race to, okay, what can I, who can I pass the buck to? Yes, right. So, oh no, actually, you know, I, I was a, in a supporting role on that project, and it was this person, this person, this person that you know they did the strategy, and I did this, and so really looking at them answering the question, and it's not a question, it's praise, but by p- help you see the bigger picture, that it wasn't just them. Right, exactly. They always lay off the credit and laying off the credit mm-hmm. on, on teammates is the kind of response that you want. Um, yeah. You know, there's one other thing that I think I, I really want to mention, and this is such a crucial point that it took so long for me to figure this out. So the biggest surprise to me when I did this study, and I studied every single team in the history of sports since the 1880s that had ever won anything, thousands of teams. And I, I, I developed a criteria to whittle them down to really the great dynasties, uh, the greatest teams in the history of their sports that had done things that no other team had ever done. And there were 16 of them. And one thing that shocked me when I looked at what they had in common was the coaches. The coaches were amazing. I thought coaching would be the thing that made these teams great. But what I found over and over again was many of them had brand new coaches, inexperienced coaches. They changed coaches during the middle of their runs. Only really mm-hmm. one of them had a coach that was considered a legendary figure. So I went back and looked at the great coaches. I looked at Vince Lombardi, at Bill Belichick, at um, uh, Greg Popovich, at Phil Jackson, uh, Alex Ferguson in the UK, the great soccer coach. And I looked at their, their careers and talked to many of them. And what I discovered was that when they had their periods of greatest success, they had a captain exactly that fit this profile running their team. And what I found was that that relationship is so crucial, but it's interesting. It's not the relationship you'd expect. It's not a boss, follower, employee sort of relationship. It's it's a par- true partnership. And it can be very contentious at times. You know, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick will um, will really go after each other, as will Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan. Um, they'll re- there's a, there's a there's conflict there. There's give and take. Um, they're very affectionate. They love each other underneath it all, but it's a very interesting relationship. And now what this does is that that partnership, that ability to talk to each other, the ability of the coach to stand down and let the captain do what they want, the ability of the captain to recognize when it's time to listen to the coach, that thing is so important, that relationship. And I think one thing that we can do as managers when we're hiring someone for a leadership position especially if we're going to be working closely with them or if we're being interviewed for a leadership position, you know, we need to think about that person that we're reporting to. Do you have that kind of rapport? Can you talk openly and honestly? Can they trust you? Can they be your partner? Can you, can you, can you lean on them? Can they lean on you? Is there respect uh, in there um, somewhere? You know, will this person give you autonomy to sometimes deflect what they want to do and and make adjustments. And that relationship is important. I think when you're interviewing someone, you have to really think, you know, can I really get into it with this person? You know, is this someone that can really trust emotionally, not to get upset, not to get, take things personally, but to really Mm -hmm. engage me in sometimes difficult dialogue about what's best for the team. And that's something we don't think about. In fact, I think we tend to opt for people who we think are really think we're brilliant and, and you know, are going to do what we say and, and, and are already kind of simpatico with us and already have a, 
uh, a tendency to want the same things that we do. That's not the right instinct. You really want someone who has views of their own, uh, but can also listen and, and can and can engage in that kind of conflict. And Alex Ferguson from Manchester United was my favorite example. And he said something that just completely surprised me, which is that he said, everything I do, everything I do to help Manchester United win, I work doggedly day in and day out behind the scenes with practices, with every detail of travel, everything that happens, strategy, everything. But the moment the whistle blows and the game begins, I have no responsibilities. I'm my job is done. It's up to the captain mm. of the team to implement and to make sure that that we do what we need to do to win. And if you remember Ferguson, if you ever watched European soccer, you remember he used to sit during games, he would sit down in the dugout with his hands folded across his chest in his parka. I mean, he didn't jump up and down. Modern coaches, they <laughs> you see them on the sidelines, they're jumping up and down, they're screaming. Yeah. He our, said, our volleyball coach was exactly that. He would sit on the bench slumped with his arms crossed <laughs> and there nobody sat next to him. There were three or four chairs. In fact, we called it the buffer zone and he was absolutely <laughs> silent and he could look at the captain on the floor and do, it, it was a Tim Duncan eyebrow. He would raise his eyebrow and you knew exactly what he wanted you to tell the rest of the team. So I think it's really interesting because that's, that's, I've seen that style before. It's really funny. I, it's it's so yeah. hard to to do that when you're a coach, especially when you're or a manager, especially when the the stakes are high. But that's when it's really sure. important to allow this the cap. If you got the right person with the right instincts and the right behaviors and the right mentality, you have to trust them and you have to believe that 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 middle manager, that person who uh, is an intermediary between the you and the players, is going to take all the information and and put it together and come up with the right course of action. And you have to be willing to stand back and let that happen. It's not easy for a manager to do, especially when things are going badly, but that's crucial, I think. Sure. Yeah, I think the application for this for, to everybody listening, um, you know, if you are a CEO of a company and it's not just about putting one leader in place that can be the captain on the court, on the field, it's actually your entire leadership team. So you should be able to sit on the bench and raise your eyebrow at every single one of the sort of intermediary leaders, right, your executive team, and know that you, you, you know, you guys have that relationship, you have that communication, um, because that's how you're going to reach the whole company, not just the, the members of one single department. So I think that's really, really essential. Yeah, no, I like to call them alpha betas. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's the best term I could think of. These are people who do not, they're, they're betas in the sense that they don't want to climb necessarily. They're not interested in prestige. They're not constantly thinking about how everything reflects on them. Uh, or their own kind of personal trophy case. They're so much more focused on the goals of the group. And, but there's an alpha quality to them. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the mistakes that I, I think managers make a lot of times is when they get someone like this, um, they don't, they kind of take them for granted because, you know, these people, their motivation comes from within and, and they're so conscientious and predictable that you know they're going to do the right thing in any circumstance. And one mistake that we make, and I study these captains, one of the things that surprised me about them was a lot of them really went to the bat for themselves when it came to money or it came to um, rules, There's things inside the team. And it, it's things that might seem selfish on the outside. You, know, you would think these people don't care about money and they don't care about compensation or 
um, anything like that, but they do. You know, I think they understand their value. They know how valuable they are to the team. And one of the things that you have to do is not only try to find these people to install them, but you have to take care of them. And yeah. the mistake we make is that we don't. And I heard this great example from a guy who works for a, a lumber company. He's an executive of a lumber company. And he, he wrote me to say that he liked the book and, and he, he had characters like this and he, he knew what I was talking about because that was the kind of uh, leaders he looked for in, on his group. And he said he's come up with this strategy, which I thought is brilliant, which is that he doesn't he knows that these people don't want a big party. They don't want to be given a trophy that says employee of the year. They don't want any individual recognition at all. In fact, they're mortified by it. So what he does is he just goes up to them every year and he writes down uh, their new salary with a nice increase on a piece of paper. And he walks over to him and he just slides it across the desk and he says, I understand the value that you bring. I know how hard you work. I, I deeply appreciate it. This place revolves in many ways around you. And, and I just want you to know that I understand and I appreciate you. And that's it. And it works. That's how you do it. That's how you motivate these people. Um, That's what they respond to. They want to be, they want you to know their their value. They don't need the accolades and recognition that come with that, but they need to know that you, that you understand. Yeah. That's, you know, what's fascinating about that is Tony has something called the six human needs and, um, you know, significance, certainty, uh, variety, growth. Like there are a lot of, um, core human needs that a lot of people that you would think are the leaders of organization have, like significance would be one of them. But one of the human needs that a lot of people want more of and they want to be seen as this, but it's very rare, is contribution. And it sounds like this ideal leader is somebody who very much values contribution. So by doing that, by increasing their salary and just saying, hey, I understand how much value you bring to this organization, you're essentially feeding into their desire to be recognized for what they're con- contributing. So I think that's a really interesting way to, you know, reward those, those A players. That's great. I would go heavy on contribution. That's one of the things you look for. You know, yep. one of the other things too that I think uh, managers can, can think about is one of the great challenges that there's no textbook for this. The question is, what do you do when you see someone in your organization that you think is a leader, has leadership candidates? How do you bring them along? How do you cultivate them? How do you move them toward leadership? They may not be ready right now, but you think they will be. What do you do? And this is a huge problem. And I mentioned before that you know there's this tendency, if you give someone leadership and bestow it on them, they overfunction. They start doing things that they think leaders are supposed to do uh, that are often the wrong things. And you can ruin them by giving them leader by 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 giving them this this um, anointing them as a leader when they're not ready. So I heard this great anecdote which I have to share, and it came from Sue Bird, who uh, Sue Bird is the captain of the U.S. Women's uh, National Basketball Team and a huge star in the WNBA, and a terrific example of the sort of captain that I'm talking about. She told me this story, which was so brilliant. I, I asked her, because she played for Connecticut, and she played for UConn, and she played for the great Gino Oriema, uh, the coach there, who um, is, I think, the winningest coach in the history of NCAA sports. I mean, he's just a legend and amazing coach. And I said, at what point did you know, did, did, did Gino make it clear that he thought you were a captain or that you had leadership qualities? And she said, you know, it happened one day when he called me into his office. And I sat down. I didn't know what he was going to say. And he said to me, Sue, 
When one of your teammates turns the ball over out of bounds, that's your responsibility. You can go. That was it. That's all he said. Wow. So wow. she knew what this was about. She's smart. She, she picked up yeah. on it. She understood that he, this was his way of saying that, you know, you can be a leader on this team. But he didn't say that. What he said was, here's what a leader – he showed her what a leader does. And what a leader does is exactly what I've described in these, in these captains. It's this ability to – whatever is happening, whatever goes wrong, you feel personal responsibility. The minute something bad goes on, it's your responsibility to address it in the moment right away and to try to fix it. And you, if you're going to be, be a leader on a team that's going to sustain success, you have to be constantly looking for the one thing you have to do right now to help the group, even if it's not glamorous, even if it's really not your fault. Even if it really has nothing to do with you, it's still your responsibility. And I thought that was brilliant because that's how you do it. You got to bring them along in a subtle way. You can't just say, I see great things in you. That's, that's, that's not the way to reach these people. The way to reach them is to show them what a leader really does and to give them a roadmap for building these behaviors and building the right instincts because it's all about instincts. It's not talent. It's not charisma. It's nothing that they were born with. It's all about making the right decisions at the right time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There's somebody within our organization that you completely have just described <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> and, you know, something else that you could do if you guys do have somebody who fits this criteria and you want to extend appreciation to them, send this to them. Say, you know, these are some of the qualities that I see in you. Um, it might be borderline cheesy, but it might be one way to communicate <laughs> yes. that there are really interesting things about them that are highly valuable, um, that are sometimes hard to articulate. But yeah, uh, I'll be sending this to him. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I, I've, that's the, probably the thing that has been the best about this book and, and the reaction that I've, I've had to it. I, I talked to um, uh, one of the captains of an, an Olympic, U.S. Olympic team, and uh, she had been chosen uh, to, to be the captain and was sort of baffled by this because she didn't see herself as leadership material. And uh, the people who run the team, you know, had read the book and thought, you know, she had the sort of characteristics that they were looking for. So I got a chance to talk to her and I, I told her that we would speak in confidence. So I don't want to reveal her name, but she said that she read the book and, uh, she had this very immediate reaction, which was she'd always thought that all of these qualities, her introversion, her, um, the fact that she didn't like to give speeches, the fact that she kept her problems to herself, the fact that she really just wanted to go home and go to bed, you know, and didn't want to go out and party and all these things that, that I outlined in the book. She said, I always thought those were weaknesses. I thought those were things I had to overcome. I always went and felt guilty about not doing those things. But she said she read the book and she thought, you know, it, I felt like it gave her permission to be herself and to, uh, to, to lead the way that she was accustomed to lead and to follow her instincts. And, you know, that's really nice because I, I think in the end, what we're all after, whether it's business or sports, is we are the, the key to success is finding people uh, and identifying people whose traits and qualities are undervalued. Mm -hmm. And, you know, statistics can tell us a lot in sports. We've gotten so good at knowing really the true statistical value of a player from what they do and, and, and counting everything they do. But the great unknown is leadership. You know, it's, it's not something we ever 
uh, look for. And most of the teams that I've spoken with say they they have a box where they rate people on leadership, but there's no criteria. There's no there's there's no qualities. There's no methodology to it. They just kind of give a ballpark figure for whether they think someone has leadership qualities or not. That is one of the great undervalued assets, not just in sports and in business, is finding these people who don't look like much. You know, who are not interesting, who are not great talkers, who are not going to bowl you over, who might be the last person anyone would ever think would be the leader of the group. But hiding there in your midst, there are a lot more of them than you realize. They're there and their value is, is not appreciated. And if you put them in positions of authority and give them these opportunities, you're going to reap big rewards for a long time. And I think it's it's an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity to just change our mindset and start looking for different things. And I think there's a lot of upside there for everyone. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, I encourage everybody to pick up Sam Walker's book called The Captain Class. Um, and Sam, uh, what are you working on next and how can people find more content from you? Well, I am soon going to be starting a new job at the Wall Street Journal, which is I'm going to be a columnist, um, and I'll be writing about leadership and management um, for a new uh, Saturday section that the paper is launching. And um, I'll also be uh, doing some consulting and some speaking and, and appearances, uh, talking about the results of the book. Uh, one of the things I'm working on is is what people have asked me about the most uh, since the book came out, which is how do we do this? You know, what are some prescriptive things that we can do? So then the research I'm doing now, I'm really collecting a lot of anecdotes and looking at a lot of research to try to come up with a, a, a formula, a, a guide for managers or hiring managers uh, to help them identify leadership candidates and cultivate them along the way. So I'm not sure what form that will take when I'm finished, but uh, it's been a great project and I love talking to people. So please feel free to get in touch and tell me your stories um, because I, I'd love to uh, include them. And I'm learning so much from people who have uh, incredible experience and, and long experience in business and sports. Perfect. So thanks so much, Sam. And everybody, you know, stay tuned to Sam's further work for actionable strategies for your business, because a lot of this conceptual work he's doing is extremely applicable. App- applicable. Uh, and I'd really encourage that you, uh, you know, keep following his work. I think it's going to make big differences in a lot of people's, a lot of people's businesses. So thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Anna. I appreciate it. All right. The Tony Robbins podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins. Anna York is our editorial director and occasional host. Our executive producer is Carrie Song. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Mary Buckheit and Diane Adcock for their creative review.